I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Welcome back to Saturday School. Today's episode, we'll be talking about the 1997 Rhea Tajiri film, Strawberry Fields, which stars Suzy Nakamura, who some of you might know from the sitcom Dr. Ken. So the film came out in 1997, and it was part of this famed, what they call the class of 97, of feature films that premiered at the then called the San Francisco International Asian American Film Festival. And it was an exciting time. I mean, it was early films by Quentin Lee, Justin Lin, Eric Nakamura, Chris Chan Lee. And it was, it's been called like the new wave of Asian American cinema. And it was, it was a kind of an important moment because before then, Asian American film festivals usually only had like two or three feature films. And they were usually made by people like Ang Lee or Mira Nair. So it didn't seem like there was something bubbling in the independent scene. But suddenly there were four independent feature-length filmmakers making narrative films that came out in the same year. And they all kind of embodied a different spirit, not just of content, but also of style. And Strawberry Fields really stands out, not just because it's the only one that's centered around a woman, but it is the first narrative feature by Rhea Tajiri, who at this time already caught a lot of attention for her short film History and Memory, which in my mind is one of the great works of Asian American cinema, and I hope we can talk about it in a future season. And that's a documentary that uses various kinds of experimental video modes to explore how Rhea and her family have continued to grapple with the ephemerality of memory surrounding the internment camps. And Strawberry Fields is kind of structured like a standard American independent film, but it has elements of experimentation, especially surrounding this concept of like forgetting memories and images from the past that are disappearing. Susie Nakamura plays a teenager named Irene. And this takes place during the 70s. Very early in the film, her younger sister passes away. And it's kind of about how she deals with that within a family who doesn't have a history of talking about past tragedies. Yeah, this idea of like not wanting to talk about trauma. Yes. So she has a boyfriend. She's kind of causing trouble at school. She's playing with fire, literally. Yeah, and she doesn't play with fire for the sake of playing with fire. Like, fire for her is both destructive and restorative. My grandfather burned the family's possessions in the strawberry fields behind the house. He thought if he burned them, no one could take their things after they were gone. She's such an interesting presence, like a screen presence. The next morning... The government sent my mother's family to the internment camps. In some ways, she's just the usual angsty teen. It's private. Private? What do you mean private? Lay off! But she seems like she's got something in the back of her mind that she can't quite extinguish. And fire becomes a part of how she grapples with that itch that she has, needing to rid herself of certain kinds of traumatic baggage. Yes. Like, it's a really random film, and I mean that in a good way, because I love randomness. It's very unpredictable. Like, she gets hallucinations. Well, she does do drugs. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Some of that randomness, I think, is just it's funny. Like, when she and her boyfriend are just flicking noodles on posters on their walls, and it becomes their way of, like, grappling with images of pop culture and Asian-ness. And at some point, she gets expelled from school, and it becomes a little bit of a road trip movie. She and her boyfriend decide to run away. But she kind of has an ulterior motive because she wants to go back to the campsites and kind of learn something about the past that her parents are trying so hard to keep from her. 
but this is not necessarily something that the boyfriend is aware of. He just thinks this is like like a romantic escapade. Yeah, yeah. One time in the film, he talks about he just wants to start fresh and hopes that this road trip can wipe the slate for them. Whereas she sees this trip not as a cleansing of the slate, but like an opportunity to interrogate very forcefully the past. She's kind of um, weirdly haunted by these memories that she doesn't really have, that these are really memories of her parents, that she feels like she needs to go out and find clarity about. They meet another couple who are activists. What are you going to be doing in San Francisco? Uh, There's a clinic in Chinatown that needs workers to do TV testing on seniors in the streets. But they're kind of like 1970s hippie-ish activists where you don't know if they're truly political or if they just like hanging out (laughs) and rock music and doing (laughs) drugs. And you can't tell if Irene is seduced by the actual politics of it or a certain lifestyle that's going to be able to take her away from her family. I mean, this is an era in American independent cinema with a ton of road films, most famously Easy Rider. So films that are usually about the counterculture in the United States. But it's usually this kind of white male counterculture that's literally wearing the American flag on them. And that's like the iconic image of Easy Rider. So for this film then to appropriate the genre of the 1970s countercultural road film, it imbues that spirit with Asian American history and saying that if one of the big things of the road film in America in the 1970s is this idea of an uncharted territory, like you're driving into worlds unexplored, rejecting the mainstream and wanting to do things on your own terms. Strawberry Fields reminds us that part of that American imaginary is actually also part of the Asian American imaginary because this is the open road where there were the camps. Yeah. So it's like reclaiming the American landscape and saying that this open road is also a quintessentially Japanese-American memory and image as well. That's something brand new to this genre, and that to me is one of the film's major contributions to American cinema. And the fun part is like they're heading on the road with like a box of dynamite in their car, (laughs) and I think that this idea of blowing up, the boyfriend wants to blow up so we can start anew, where she feels like it's something that needs to be blown up so that she can see her family more clearly. And so we have this like ticking time bomb that, that they're running into the West with. I thought things were going good until we met up with them. You're an asshole. What am I supposed to think? It wasn't me. It was... What? (laughs) Just tell me. I can't. Why not? You just have to believe me. So this idea that there are ghosts all around her, I think it comes back to the landscape. She kind of plays the landscape like a Ouija board. Like like there's something out there. Like she, and she's going to be the one to summon the spirits in order to somehow free her family, free her, free her and her sister. And there's something about this idea of acknowledging the ghosts of the landscape that ties this to other kinds of narratives that we see in American popular culture, especially around Native Americans. In a lot of Native American stories, there are a lot of road films, but the road films have a fundamentally different kind of tenor than the countercultural road films that we see made by white people like Dennis Hopper in the 1970s. There's a haunting in these landscapes that need to be acknowledged. So we see Rhea doing similar things with the legacies of the camps in these landscapes. Have you seen a lot of Suzy Nakamura's work? Because I've seen her on Dr. Ken, and I've probably seen her mostly in comedy roles. Yeah. So it was really cool to see a dramatic role like this. I'd never seen her do anything like that before. Yeah, and it's, it's such a meaty role, too. This is one of her first films, and it's awesome that she's been able to do so much in television and that she's become this staple of the Hollywood comedy. But... I don't know, I wonder like what would her career have been like if she had more parts like this where she could play characters that are hard to pin down. And I think that speaks to her ability to handle so many different kinds of tones and to embody that experimental spirit that Rhea Tajiri was going for. Yeah, yeah. 
So the film, I think, fits within our topic of troublemakers because, I mean, she's a pyromaniac and she definitely is not playing by the rules. I don't know, how would you characterize her as a kind of troubling character? It reminded me that in our season of troublemaking, we hadn't talked that much about troublemaking as a reaction to grief. And in this particular case, mixed with the heightened emotions of teenage life. Yeah. And it reminds me of like (laughs) the TV show, My So-Called Life. This is a very, very admittedly silly comparison. Go on, go on. (laughs) Susie Nakamura would be like the Angela Chase character. The Claire Danes character. Kind of like the good girl about to get derailed. And you feel everything she feels so intensely. Aura, played by Reiko Matthew. She kind of has like the Ray and Graf vibe to her, like she's going to get her in trouble. And there's actually like a scene in my so-called life. The pilot starts with her dyeing her hair red, looking in a mirror. And there's actually like an exact scene like that in Strawberry Fields. The Aura character is like braiding her hair. And then I think the Jared Leto character is definitely Chris Tashima. Who's <laughs> 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 like, who's like, you know, actor, director, Oscar winner for a short film, Visas and Virtues. Yeah, yeah. But he's kind of like the hot guy. And I feel like he just kind of shows up very brooding and then he hands her some drugs. Like, Because Jordan Catalano is basically like just this hot guy. When she says like, oh, Jordan Catalano, I love the way he leans. Oh my God, that line is in my head forever. I love the way he leans. I feel like when Chris Tashima walked in, I could imagine like, oh, look at Mark. I love the way he gives him drugs. It's medicinal. I, I am never going to look at Chris Tsushima the same way again, by the way. Can you kind of see it, though? Totally, totally. <laughs> then the boyfriend would be kind of the Brian Krakow character, right? Because he's probably the guy who's good for her. and He's the guy that she doesn't treat very well. Yeah, I would I would <laughs> never. Only you, only you could have figured that one out. I was like, oh, this is probably the closest thing to an Asian-American, my so-called life, we got in the 90s. I actually really appreciate that connection because I think that when we think about Asian-American film history, we think about it in a vacuum. Like it's its own history with like its own highlights and stuff. But we often don't think about what was happening in popular culture just outside of Asian-American cinema. So what was Strawberry Fields speaking to in popular culture yeah. The certain kind of like teenageness. I mean, in the film, it's like 1970s counterculture. But when I was watching this film that was made in 1997, I thought about grunge. Anytime music comes on, I think Eddie Vedder's voice is going to appear or like four non-blondes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's just really exciting to know that Asian American film history is also American popular culture history. And, and a film like this, which is so attuned to what was going on in the culture, is able to accomplish that and help us remember that. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that features stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our new website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com, where you can find lecture notes and links to all the films we covered. Or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And our podcast handle is Wake Up Set School. Next week, your assignment is to watch the 1993 film Terminal USA by John Moritsuku. Class dismissed.
Hey guys, if you're looking for more podcasts, we encourage you to check out Phil Yu and Jeff Yang's podcast, They Call Me Bruce. Their last episode featured an interview with the guy behind the Ask a Korean blog, where he basically does an in-depth explanation of the history between North Korea and South Korea as someone who was raised in South Korea and whose wife's family came from North Korea. So it's super fascinating. I highly recommend it. And check out the rest of the podcast in the Potluck Podcast Collective. See you next week.